0: This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at Pianowars.com.
1: This is Marshall Crenshaw, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. In
0: 1982, Marshall Crenshaw's eponymous debut album blended a cool, retro songwriting aesthetic with a revitalized sound and Marshall's unmistakable vocal style. That combination, along with songs like Someday, Way," There She Goes Again, She Can't Dance, and Cynical Girl, would ensure its status as an instant pop classic. Other career highlights include one of Crenshaw's most covered songs, You're My Favorite Waste of Time, and the jubilant Whenever You're On My Mind. Billboard magazine named the 1995 hit, Till I Hear It From You, which was co-written and released by the Gin Blossoms, the closest thing to a perfect pop song to hit radio in recent memory. Today, Marshall Crenshaw is eminently regarded as a master of melody-driven songwriting. Let's listen. Marshall Crenshaw, welcome to Songwriter Stories.
1: Well, thanks, Dave. In
0: 1982, you released an album through Warner Brothers called Marshall Crenshaw. It was filled with instantly likable songs. It was produced by yourself, and you might have to help me with this name. Is it Richard Goderer?
1: You got it. Richard Goderer.
0: Goderer. And uh-huh. he got his start in the bro building, and that seems like a perfect fit for you. And he had previously produced Blondie and the Go-Go's. So in what ways did the record match your original artistic vision for it when you were producing alone Yeah. and in what ways did it fall short or surpass it?
1: Oh boy. I mean, yeah, it, it was a real heavy lift to make that record. I got in my own way a lot. That's how I view it now. Looking back, mm-hmm. I kind of lied my way into the producer's chair, honestly, because, uh, you know, I, I mean, I had a lot of experience with recording, but it was all I learned on a Scully four-track machine how to record, and then I got myself a, a TAC four-track and made my first demos on that, right? Right. And use, using well, lots of overdubbing, the kind of stuff that you would never do once multi-track was in the in the equation. You know, like all my recording methods that i knew were like pre-multi-track let's say but you know at the same time i got i don't know if you've ever heard any of these demos i'm talking about but they're kind of you know they they have like a cult following of their own you know and i I was really proud of them and and really loved the they rocked is i guess is one way you could put it but anyway uh what I didn't know how to do is sort of translate some of that approach and use it you know w- in in tandem with like the production values that were expected of a record right at that moment you know if, gotcha. but people know how to you know now I do and other people do, but just the idea of deliberately, you know I mean the way the the way that the engineers approached making rock records right at that moment when I was at the record plant, it was like it was like brain surgery or something. You know, mm-hmm. very, very meticulous. Uh everything solid state. It just was like a kind of a oil and water thing really.
0: Felt sterile to you?
1: Yeah, me trying to do my thing with like you know, multi-track equipment of that moment. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, like 10, 15 years later, like every studio had lots of tube equipment and there was a different aesthetic going on. But when I started trying to produce the record myself, I got in trouble pretty quickly and a distress call went out and Richard Goddard was one of the people that, well, maybe he was the only person that got a distress call because I'd worked with him already and I knew him. So uh, anyway, he was brought in after I'd already kind of, Like swam out too far, got in over my head, so to speak, trying to produce the record myself.
0: It turned out amazingly well. Back on this combination of songwriter, band, and co-producers, what kind of adjectives would you have used in 1982 to describe your songwriting capabilities, the band's proficiency with these songs, and the appropriateness of the record production? And has your opinion of that changed since it was remastered and re-released by Rhino in 2000?
1: You know, I wasn't really satisfied with the sound of it. Honestly, I just thought it was too airbrushed. Mm-hmm. Richard would say well okay we got the drums now we put the bass on now we need some thickening that was his term Mm -hmm. so that meant for me to go out in the studio and put down six acoustic guitars like a bed of acoustic guitars on each song and I would do it you know because I wanted to just have the session go forward rather than crash and burn so I you know I did it but uh, like you know, what I don't hear particularly on my first album is, is my guitar. You know what I mean? Yep. Like there are, lots of, there are layers and layers of guitars, but there's like nothing really distinctive about the guitar. And that was, a bother, that was a bothersome thing for me. You know, I love the album and I love that other people love it. And, you know, I'm, I'm 100% good with it. But that was my beef with it afterwards. Is I'm like, you know, I got this little band. It's a trio and we play really loud. And we like really blow it up when we are in a club and this record doesn't really capture that. Mm -hmm. That was my struggle, you know, at that time. So
0: I noticed that um, in some of your interviews, you've talked about it being a little overproduced, but somehow the personal nature of it comes across. I think it's in your writing and your singing style.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Thanks. I do too. It comes through. Yeah. Cool. But well, good. I mean, so there there you go.
0: That charm is there and it's part of what made you hit so well. You're considered like an elder statesman of melodic pop, you know? I mean, you mm. really, really looked up to you that way.
1: Yeah. Well, they're just rock and roll songs to me. That's what, that's what I was trying to write. It's like just trying to write good rock and roll songs. But that meant like a range of influences, you know, go into what I call rock and roll.
0: Well, that brings up my next question i'm going to talk about uh, one influence the usual thing on your first album has an everly brothers feel not only in the musical style but in the straight thirds of the vocal harmonies
1: yeah don't
2: want to know about the usual thing i never bother with the usual thing and i only want to shout shout feel alive do whatever i want to do just forget about the usual If you think you out too, I just wouldn't bother with you I just
0: wouldn't bother with you Can you point out a song of yours that was strongly influenced by another artist but a listener might not make the connection because the influence is manifested more subtly?
1: Oh, well, I just thought of one. This is very obscure. This is a song of mine on uh, on field day called Our Town.
0: I love that song.
1: Thanks. took the melody from this kind of ballad somehow or another this record showed up at our house i don't know how sometimes records would just be at our house i wouldn't know how they got there (laughs) but this was one called honest i do by babs cooper really beautiful kind of you know girly rock and roll record Mm -hmm. and it's uh, so our town is just it's the the melody to that song but sped up you know my song is a fast song hers was slow but it's the same melody that's that's one but people that write the kind of stuff that I write, you know, you just, things just pop into your mind. Sometimes they're, you're borrowing something, might not know it right at at the moment. It happens all the time.
0: I'd like to talk about recording vocals a little bit. And you have a great intuition for melody, but also you sell that melody with your vocal delivery, which is iconically your own. To my ears, after your early albums, you seem to put your emphasis on honesty, heart, and attitude. Again, talking about the way they were produced differently in the early days. How do you approach recording a lead vocal, and has that approach evolved at all over the years? Uh, how do I
1: approach it? Well, it's, it's, I, I, I can think back on sometimes not having like complete confidence while I was trying to record a vocal. You know, like I mm-hmm. struggle. Just think, oh, I don't like the way my voice sounds and you know what okay what do i do which microphone and then uh i go up and down you know like sometimes i really love the sound of my own voice and sometimes i dislike it so i struggle with that you know over the years you know like at different on different records uh i don't know i just try to sing in tune that's the number one thing Mm -hmm. uh now i listen back to some of my early vocals and i realize that i don't enunciate or i didn't enunciate all that well sometimes like whenever you're on my mind right that's one of my most popular songs and i listen to it myself singing and i'm like well you the words aren't clear enough it's just something like the way i pronounce certain vowel sounds oh well anyway i know i'm saying better now than i than i could i mean uh, technically i can Mm -hmm. when i was doing my uh album with Ed Stasium. That was my sixth album. Ed was really uh, savvy about certain things, lots of things, everything. And uh, he sent me to one of the best vocal coaches in Hollywood, a guy named Seth Riggs.
0: I know the name and I have a a book by him.
1: You do? Okay. Singing for the Stars. I had a half dozen lessons with this guy and it it really just changed my life. And uh, another thing was when I did La Bamba, after we were all done, uh, I went out to dinner one night with Taylor Hackford, right? Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this and that. And he told me about this movie that he had just seen called Say Amen Somebody. It's a movie about gospel singers. Okay. And there's a scene in that movie where a woman gives a vocal lesson to a member of her choir. And I just, the, just the way she described the technique that she wanted this guy to adopt, I'm like, I get it, you know, and uh, so the, the, both of those things happen right around the same time, or roughly the same time, you know, like, so I just, I learned a lot about singing at a certain point, And I use those things, you know, like, how to warm up and, you know, what your head voice is. So yeah, I mean, I have more knowledge now about singing than I did in the beginning.
0: Do you find that uh, if you're looking at your career from the beginning to the end, you did more re-recording the vocal, like takes, did the takes increase or decrease over the years?
1: Decreased. In the beginning, I, you know, I would, well, sometimes it would be the producer that would want me to do uh, a lot of takes. Like I think on field day, we did like 12 takes of each mm-hmm. song. I mean, it was nuts. No, not criticizing, but that, you know, the, yeah, back then it was more obsessive. Now I just try to do, you know, I just try to do one take or I I don't like to have, now that I'm, I'm the one that comps the vocal, you know, or if I comp it, if I have Mm -hmm. to comp it. But I really, you know, I really love it when I can just get it all in one or two. That's how real singers do it. I remember Ed Stasium telling me that he engineered Midnight Train to Georgia. Mm -hmm. by Gladys Knight he said she just walked up to the microphone and sang the song in one shot right yeah (laughs) and here we are you know those little little rock guys you know we're just having to Mm -hmm. paste and cut everything and there's one song on the album I did with Ed called Somewhere Down the Line I put it up in this crazy high key for some reason but I still couldn't hit the low notes it was like a really wide range it is to the melody and those low notes he just Really tormented me over those. I remember spending like a half hour, 45 minutes just trying to hit those low notes. Compare that to Gladys Knight, right?
0: (laughs) Right. Did you find, after the first album, when you said you had a little bit of an issue with enunciation, did you also notice that you weren't writing the lyrics so that vowels would land on long notes, for instance, or something like that? Did Did you ever think about word choices in terms of singability? right off the bat or did you learn it later
1: on my third album we're, we're we're up to the third album now okay and i got i got schooled on that one by t-bone burnett various things and uh one of the things that he tried to impress upon me was just says this is this is about you singing the song it's not about the tambourine or the you know, the way the bass drum sounds or the echo is, it's the song and the singer. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, that wasn't, wasn't really my philosophy at all. Mine was, it's about the record as a totality, you know, but he made that point with me and, you know, he's right. I was right. And he was right. So I started to think differently over time, just from learning things, you know, like from other people and just learning from my own self-criticism, you know,
0: you have a song, you're my favorite waste of time, and that was written while you were working with Beatlemania, and even before you wrote Someday Some Way from your first album. It was originally released as a B side to a single and later was put on some compilations. And if I understand correctly, it was never on a studio album, never re recorded for a studio album. It's arguably one of your best tunes. Were you concerned about the trickiness of chasing the demo or chasing the original recording?
1: Uh well it was never in the you know on the table, so to speak. You know, as as a song on my first album, I just didn't have room for it. Mm-hmm. But I was really happy to be able to put it out as a B side, partly because it's one of my home demos. Like I said, you know, that was a my sound. You know, that mm-hmm. I made all by myself, and I, I, I was really proud of those demos. And uh,
0: but you just let it stand on its own. You said you didn't say let me add this song that everyone loves so much to it to an album to give it more oomph
1: okay. no okay i figured putting it on the b side of someday some way was was plenty you know good as a you know but here's the thing i mean that song really found its own path in the world it's like the little sperm cell that got through
0: The little gem on a b side
1: yeah that's the song of mine that you know to put it bluntly i think that's the one that's made the most money out of any of them
0: Beautiful. There are a number of covers of this song out there and uh, many of them, if not most of them, square off the rhythm of the first my and the second note after that. So they're squarely on the beat. And I'm going to sing it, if you'll forgive me. Uh One, two, three. You're my. (laughs) That's excruciating to me. It's like you missed the point. Does that bother you?
1: No, it doesn't bother me. Now, you know, I'm I'm a rock and roll singer. That's what kind of singer I am. So I sing it that, you know. Here I am.
0: And that makes the song what it is, I think, and it's it's really nice. But Bat Miller and there was a famous British version, I think.
1: That's the one that was, you know, like that still gets played on the radio all the time over in uh, Europe and in England. Still, it's one of those songs, you know, that just won't go away.
0: I just feel like it misses the point of of the anticipation of the beat, like you're. Well,
1: dying. you know, I don't like that version of it, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretend I didn't say that. though. Right,
0: and you love love what it did for your career.
1: (laughs) You know, yeah, it's nice to have hits. That's what I always wanted.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about power pop. Some of your recordings could be called power pop, you agree, but um, you've been quoted as saying that as a music category, it's a bit of a dodgy connotation. Um, (laughs) I like that quote, and I agree with you. Can you elaborate?
1: Yeah, I, I dislike that term. Most of the music that's called power pop is music that i don't like personally <laughs> it just doesn't move me i'm not complaining i don't complain about anything It's a sin to complain but I, I hate when somebody tries to shove my stuff into a little subcategory like that and it's really not you know i don't that's that's how they look at it you know the, the other people use these terms these terms but you know I, like i said already my stuff is it's just i just think of it as rock and roll music
0: I'd like to toss up some of your co-writes and collaborators and have you comment on the writing experience. And as we go, please include things like whether the songs were written live in a room or long distance or a combination, and any guidance you might have given to your writing partners about the song in advance if you were the starter, other than like an in-progress recording. So first off, we're gonna do the bills. You've got a lot of bills here. You like huh? it? Bill Teely, uh, Whenever You're On My Mind from Field Day, one of the bonus tracks on the Rhino release is a version of that song. And I think two of the catchiest parts for me are the three accents on the first three words of the verse. I think about oh, yeah, yeah. it. I like that. Uh-huh. And I also like the intervals that end the verse. I
2: think about you and forget what I've tried to be.
1: The demo, yeah, I forgot that I put the demo on. uh, I remember the demo was kind of oddball because uh, for the drums, I tried to use this practice pad set that I had and this little splash cymbal. So that's a sort of a funny sound on that track. But anyway, I mean, the only one there is is the one with Steve Lillywhite. That's, you know, a really great rock and roll record.
0: Also the bridge is so well written.
1: Teeley was in beatlemania with me and it was through him that i met bill his brother bill actually is is a lyric writer you know i don't know how active is he's is at it anymore but bill and tom and a couple other friends of mine had a band back then that i really liked a lot they were called the metro men and bill was the lyric writer in the band he was really good so i asked them to help me with whenever you're on my mind For me it was another rewrite that I did of When You Walk in the Room by Jackie DeShannon. About four or five songs of mine that are rewrites of that one. Mm -hmm. And uh I you know, I played the thing for Bill. I said, it's called Whenever You're On My Mind and let's just do a rewrite of I Only Have Eyes for You and and we'll be good to go. You know. So that's what I asked him to do, but I mean he really did he really did much more than that, you know, the lyrics I think are just absolutely beautiful. So I took his draft, right? Mm
3: -hmm. And I just
1: kind of chopped it up in pieces and stuck it back together, threw away a little part of it and added some part of it. But mostly it's him, like all the really poetic and great stuff in that on in the lyrics. That's it's all him.
0: Let's do Bill Demain, our second Bill. TMD from number 447 oh yeah mm-hmm.
1: Well, let me see. Truly, Manly, Deeply. That was his title. I didn't have a title. Uh, I, had the mu- I had the music like I always do.
0: On our episode, he said, you sang, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that type of thing, and gave him that.
1: Yeah. And then for a placeholder where I wanted the title to be, I was singing Over, Under, Sideways, Down, you know, the Yardbirds. Oh. Just, you know, not because I wanted to, not to clue him into anything other than where the title should go. I love that. So he came back and said, "Well, what about Truly Madly Deeply as the title?" And I, I kind of went, "Hmm. I said that's a movie, right?" And I uh, he said, "Yeah." And so I said, "Well, yeah, all right, that's great." You know, I didn't want to discourage him. And uh so we went ahead and did it. And, you know, it's a, that's another really beautiful one. It's just okay. got a, a nice atmosphere to it. And I love their version of it too. The Swan Dive version is I like it just as much as I like my own, which is rare.
0: He was talking about how he tried very much to write lyrics that Marshall Crenshaw should sing. Like if he listened to the albums about walking around in, rocking around NYC and girls and different things what what would Marshall Crenshaw want? What do we have to have coming out of his mouth? Uh-huh, you know, he's tried to write a lyric for you to sing.
1: that's funny. well, we went you know, we went back and forth. It was more sort of like a collaboration, mm mm-hmm. huh on the lyrics. And it's funny that he said that, cause I was thinking about the fact that, uh, the, at the time Swan dive was, uh, they were selling records in Japan and mm-hmm. South Korea, places like that. And, uh, I really liked this band right at that moment called Shonen knife. And they wrote a lot of songs about like everyday things like, you know, going to the bathhouse and eating chocolate bars and stuff. And so I tried to make, My part of the lyric writing, I was going for that kind of like minute detail observation and like everyday sights and sounds and objects and stuff. I was trying to put it in that sort of a, I didn't know that they were going to record the song at the time, but I was just thinking about, you know, my impressions of the Japanese pop music that I knew when I was working on the lyrics with him. The part of it that I did kind of has that flavor in it. (laughs)
0: Bill Lloyd, Ready Right Now from 447, The Man Who Knew Too Much from Bill's Set to Pop, Holding Back the Waterfall from Bill's album Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. Those are all co writes with Bill Lloyd. Do any of those stand out for you?
1: Well, you know, Bill's just a great guy. Everybody loves him that knows him, as it says in the old Phil Spector song. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just, um, every now and then we do something together. And uh, all those ones you named, I mean, they're they're all good. They all came out really good. And I love Bill's stuff that he does himself. Foster and Lloyd, too. I played on a Foster and Lloyd record one time. You know, just, I'm just really happy to know the people that I know. You know, I just know a lot of really great people.
0: David Cantor, Diamond Dozen Guy from 447.
1: Dave has uh, had a group, might still have one, called Dave's True Story. You know, you know they made some records, and uh, you know he's a like a lyric writer. He's a guitar player too, but <clears throat> there's certain people, and I'm not one of these people. They just have a facility with lyric writing that I don't have. They do it all the time. They're into the mindset of doing it, and they're they're writers, you know. And like when I get when I'm stuck trying to get a song to happen you know I, sometimes i have to turn to I, I like to turn to people like him that'll just put the stuff on the page in the first place sometimes i can't even get myself to put anything on the page and it's weird but it's just one of those quirks you know that i have to deal with trying to work around my own limitations you know uh anyway dave's you know he's just really good his own songs are cool and uh with that one, with Dime a Dozen guy, we actually were sitting in the room when we when we first worked on it. And I went in there and I didn't have anything, you know, like I didn't have any music in advance like I usually do. I think on the way over to his apartment, I was you know I was driving over there and I think I heard maybe some Latin jazz on the radio because we wound up going down that road with Dime a Dozen guy, just you know mm-hmm. the chord changes and the. That was the initial thing of it. I think he just picked up the guitar and played a couple of chords, and then off we went. Most and the lyrics are mostly him. I, I chimed in for maybe about thirty-five percent of it. That's a common thing for me to do: is write the music myself and then collaborate on the lyrics with somebody. But with that song, Dave and I just you know threw it together from scratch, music and lyrics.
0: Jules Shear, everything's the truth from life's too short. How did you come together?
1: He and I were on a show together. They used to have these shows at the bottom line in New York called In Their Own Words. And they were great shows. And they were instigated by uh, Alan Pepper, the club owner, and Vin Skelza, legendary New York DJ, right? Mm-hmm. He, would, he was the host of these shows. And it would be, you know, on that one, I think it was me and Jules and uh, Harvey Fuqua, maybe. Mm-hmm right i mean there's somebody of stature <laughs> for sure <laughs> uh and i think marshall chapman that was one foursome that happened but i met jules that day and I, I remember that doc Pomas was in the audience at that one so anyhow i met jules and uh we went on a tour together also there was an in their own words tour more than one actually and i went on one with him got to know him you know uh at that time well you know we were like in each other's orbit for maybe three or four years mm-hmm. different times i asked them to write stuff and usually it didn't work out not through any fault of his at all you know there was one song that, the first one i asked them to help me with wound up as a wound up as an instrumental called theme from flare gun mm-hmm. but i mean he did maybe i should have given him a credit on the instrumental version of it because what happened was he wrote all these words and they were you know they're good because he's a really great songwriter but i just thought well I'll, you know there's a lot of detail here and uh when it was just an instrumental i liked it better so i think i'll go back to that <laughs> i didn't you know just that's how it was a funny left turn but uh
0: One of my absolute favorites of all time from you is Starless Summer Sky from Miracle of Silence, which is recently (laughs) re-released. You wrote that with two co-writers according to my notes rick chofi and fred tot
1: yeah well they were a team see so it was 50 50 between the team and myself you mm. could say but anyway yeah there were three of us how did that go well they just they just wrote all the time they 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 approached it like a like Brill building writers would they would get in the cubicle every day but you know the cubicle was over at fred's house but they had a a four track machine, just like I got, and uh, would make these great demos that sounded like records.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I like, really dug what they were doing. It was Rick's idea that that I should write with them. He just s- instructed me that I was, you know, I should write songs with them. He was the one that got me started on the whole thing with uh, "When You Walk in the Room" by Jackie DeShannon. He like he coached me. He said, you know, all you got to do is just rewrite that song and, and off you go, you know? So we did a few like that where I would write the music based on when you walk in the room and then he would write the words mostly, maybe Fred would tweak it a little bit and then I would get it back from them and just redo it. You know, I would again, tear it apart and stick it back together again, but they were just strictly about wanting to write good rock and roll songs. And that was their whole thing. And, 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 you know, I was right on the, same page with them you know just write good rock and roll songs
0: who initiated that one
1: i guess i did because i had the music first all complete
0: did you have the title
1: no he came up with the title and it was uh starlit summer sky and i'm like starlit huh and uh there used to be a tv show on the on tv in the detroit area when i was a kid rick and and fred were from the detroit area too And uh, there's a TV show on Channel 7 called Starlet Stairway. Mm. And they would have, like, you know, kids, tap dancers, accordion players, the whole thing. And uh, I think that's where Rick got the word starlet from Starlet Stairway. Mm. And then later on, uh, when I decided to resurrect the song, I changed it to Starless just to give it a vibe, you know, a different kind of vibe.
2: Take from fools I everything is cool until I hear
0: it from you You've spoken a few times about "till I hear It from You," uh, which was recorded by the Jim Blossoms. You wrote it with Jesse Valenzuela, and Robin Wilson added lyrics um, after the fact, I believe, and you, you didn't even meet him till later.: Exactly. Jesse started the music and you helped him out by contributing. It says the verse melody and the ending and the fade. You want to talk about that in a little more detail?
1: You know, we met up at South by Southwest and, uh, you know, in a hotel room. And he said, Well, here's what I've got. And he played it for me. And I said, oh, All right, hang on. I got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And I did that, I went in there and uh just the melody of the verse
2: i didn't ask (laughs)
1: all there at once right so i i came out of the bathroom and i said well how about this and he was like that's fucking great and that was it and uh and then you know we're just playing it like going back and forth and playing and uh drilling it into our minds and you know we had a cassette machine going and and then we got to the end and i said well what about you know when when the, when you get to the out outro or the tag whatever you want to call it just you know have the singer go till i hear it from you na, 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 na. you know that was my other idea yeah he just had the changes and the structure and i put the melody to it and then he had the title already i think they had the title and that was it. The, the, the beauty, you know, I've said this before too. You probably found this in lots of interviews, but I mean, the really beautiful thing about that was that they already knew that it was going to go onto a movie soundtrack. Mm. They they wrote it because they got asked to contribute a song to this to this movie. And uh, so, you know, sometimes you write a song and it's just sort of okay, we did it, but then it just doesn't have any sort of life out in the world but that one already was predestined right so that was amazing been a couple times when i've been involved in projects where they'll they'll, they'll actually be marketing money behind the song you know like they'll plunk down the it was it's like about 300 grand roughly is the number to launch a single back then get it on the radio so there would already be the 300 grand you know on the books that was going to get spent to promote this or that it happened with La Bamba even I mean it wasn't my song or anything but it, you know the soundtrack album blew up and the movie was number one and it happened with uh Till I Hear It From You it a movie called Empire Records and the movie you know the movie wasn't a hit but the soundtrack album was huge and it was because because that song got promoted anyhow yeah it was great I loved it and uh it was nice it really it came at such an amazingly perfect moment too because uh I just, you know, I was kind of floundering a little bit in the, a couple of the years leading up to that. You know, like I'd sung a beer commercial where I got paid kind of nicely and
3: mm-hmm.
1: they would renew it every year. So I would get the beer commercial money and then I might get a couple of dollars from uh, Bug Music as an advance. And I just like I was, I was kind of lethargic and in a funny place, you know, like a slump, I guess. It was just uh, one of those things, you know, going through the viciss- vicissitudes of life and all that. And then uh, suddenly here's uh, the gin blossoms, right? And uh, this huge right out of the box. So that just kind of set the course for a different uh, phase of my life. It was really a beautiful thing. But all, you know, the stuff like what I said about you're my favorite waste of time how oh, it was a demo and then it was a B-side and somehow or another it got out into the world and did what it did. I actually love all that, you know, mm-hmm. just the crazy randomness of it. I, I I, love it.
0: But you see, you have no temptation to record it, uh, your own version.
1: until I hear it from you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No, I, you know, I didn't really have anything to add to it. It's like they, they did it exactly. And it was there, it was meant for them. It was their thing. And, uh, no, I was more than happy just to have them do their thing with it, you know?
0: Do you ever play it in your live show?
1: Yeah, if somebody asks for it, once in a while I do it. Rarely, but I do. You know, I mean, I'm mean, I'm not averse to doing it.
0: I have one more collaboration to ask you about. Passing through with Kelly Ryan from your Jagged Land album.
2: In our old shoes we walked last night Sparkling concrete under the lights Traffic sounds bouncing off the steel and glass We traced our steps from the past Shadows in the curtains on the second floor I used to have a key to that front door We didn't know it then just passing through, passing by, let's hurry on. No use standing and staring, hurry on. I thought I heard you say, let's walk on. We really can't stay, we're just passing through this way.
1: That's a good song of mine. She really uh, kind of opened up that whole thing. She's an a old friend of mine. And her husband is an old friend, too. Kelly's uh, kind of driven and prolific and always at it. You know, a real worker, creator. You know how sometimes individuals will, will concoct like a group name, but it's really just them, right? And her thing was called the Astro Puppies. So, you know, she made some records as the Astro Puppies, but it was really just Kelly, more or less. Anyways, great stuff. You know, she's really good, and she did a solo album too. I had, again. I had the music for "Passing Through," all complete, no words, can't get anything on the page. So I sent the music to Kelly, and uh, no preps. Well, a little bit, yeah, because she and her husband live part of the year on the like the southern coast of Ireland, with the ocean, you know, right outside their yard, right. So mm. I said. I don't know, Kelly, just like, you know, look out your window and describe what you're seeing Mm -hmm. and write, you know, just see, just send me something and that'd be great. It would be amazing. So uh, (laughs) she sent me a draft of lyrics, but it it wasn't about Ireland or any kind of pastoral scene. It was like urban Mm -hmm. and the city. And I'm like, why does she do that? And I, and I I realized she thinks of me as a city person because the, the, Few times that she and her husband have visited my wife and I at our home. We've lived in New York City. And uh, so that's what she's doing there. She's doing what Bill Teeley tried to do, you know, trying to get inside my head. And uh, but that worked, you know. So what I did was I made it about, you know, I, I just like I grabbed about six or seven lines from her draft that were really beautiful, you know, like the sparkling concrete which is a real thing and mm-hmm. the shadows in the curtains and the all that you know like those are all all those scenic kind of things or cinematic things like she sent me those were in her lyrics and uh so I thought about my own and I my wife walking through the East Village where we used to live and thinking about friends of ours who are gone you know cuz we both have a lot you know we lived in New York City during the AIDS crisis. And with her in particular, she just lost a big, long list of friends, including her best friend. And, uh, you know, ghosts of old friends were walking along, and ghosts of old friends are on the left and right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's it. You know, it's Kelly, you know, kind of throwing in some cinematic, scenic stuff. And I'm doing this kind of dreamlike thing with me and I own. I love that song. I do too. Oh, thanks.
0: Back in the early 80s or 90s, I had this weird idea because a lot of interviews are regurgitation of a press release or they're um, not really getting into the songwriting or more about the celebrity. I'm into the music. I want to know more about the music. So maybe I'm the only one. But <laughs> <laughs> I had this concept. What if one songwriter could interview another songwriter? And then the next thing I know, I pick up a magazine And I don't know if you remember this. If you don't remember, this is going to go nowhere. Um, I pick up a magazine, and you're in it with, I think, two other writers, and I think one of them was Graham Parker. I don't have it anymore. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was talking about this with my son because we were talking about food and, like, what's the best food you ever had? And uh, one of my favorite meals I ever had was at this place in New York called the Bombay Palace and that's where we did that interview that you're talking about it was for Musician Magazine and it was with myself and Graham Parker and Billy Bragg yes Billy Bragg two, two Brits and me and uh you know I guess we just sat at the table and talked right and uh somebody made an article out of it but the but what I remember I don't remember any of the conversation. And I don't remember the article, uh, mm-hmm. although, although I did read it. But I remember the food because it was crazy good. <laughs> I went back there later on with my wife, and we just loved it. You know.
0: Who put the three of you together? Were you doing something together already? Were you on the same tour? No,
1: no, it was just this person. I don't know. You know. Somehow it was uh, concocted you know, by somebody.
0: Well, I've got to go find it now that I know the details. I'm going to see if it's available anywhere.
1: Graham, I knew I already knew Graham Parker, and was friendly with him. I kn- only met Bill Billy Bragg that day, but you know he's great.
0: And then uh, since then, you've had your own radio show, and hopefully I have the details right. Wfuv, called the Bottomless Pit, starting in 2011. So, for people who have never heard it, can you describe how it came to be and what it was like?
1: Yeah, it was just you know me running my mouth and playing playing uh, items from my record collection. And sometimes the shows would be like little documentaries. I would talk a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I would try not to talk too much ever. But, uh, you know, like I did one about Paul Revere when he died. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I would just just find at times that I had a lot to say about this or that. And some people really liked it. I mean, it wasn't like anything else. Because, again, it was just strictly me... Giving my point of view, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of the shows would just be ninety-five percent music and a little bit of talk, and then others would be, you know, forty-sixty with me Mm -hmm. talking. But I mean, you know, I've just got a lot of love for this stuff and a lot of knowledge about it, if you want to call it knowledge. But you know, just (laughs) I just know a lot of stuff. You know, there's things stick in my brain. That have to do with popular music. That's what my brain does. I don't know why, but I always loved doing it. And then I decided to stop at one point.
0: How many did you do? Do you know for how long it was?
1: Uh, well, I started out at the station in, uh, here in the Hudson Valley where I live. And the reason it happened is because I was on Steve Earle's show on Air America, and it was a show where you bring records that you like and you play them and you talk about them and Mm -hmm. i I realized that i that i love doing that like every now and then over the years somebody on a radio show would ask me to do that and i would always get a kick out of it so uh i did the steve earl show and then like two minutes later more or less i ran into a friend of mine handsome dick manitoba from the dictators right the Mm -hmm. legendary handsome dick manitoba and uh he was telling me that he had just gotten a gig on the underground garage channel on XM. And I found myself envying him when he said it. And I'm like, what's that about? You know, and to myself, I'm going, well, why, why? uh, I guess I need to do a radio show. (laughs) So (laughs) I just decided then that I was going to do it. And I asked this person I knew who owned a radio station, if I could go on the air and the guy said, yeah, sure. Why not? And, uh, so I went on the air and I wasn't good at it at first. I just sort of worked at it over the years cause I wanted to be satisfied with it. You know, I just, like like I said, I just love doing it. As soon as I started doing it, I loved it. So I, I did for a long time. And then I stopped cause I'm, uh, I've talked about this a whole lot too much really, but I'm making a documentary, right? So, I stopped doing the radio show so I could really focus on the documentary.
0: Now, what's the, um, do you have a release date for that? or? A-
1: no, at the beginning of this year, I was 100% confident that the movie would get finished this year. But, you know, things are a little different now than they were back in February. I could still release it if it was finished, but my problem is I can't finish it because nobody will do interviews and I still need to do some.
0: What is the um, topic?
1: It's record producer, Tom Wilson. Hmm. Tom Wilson is important, very important, but somehow or another, and I don't know, I don't know why or how, but his name is obscure, but you know, the records with his name on them are some of the most iconic records ever. Like, Bob Dylan from uh, the Freewheel Bob Dylan through to Like a Rolling Stone. That was Tom Wilson.
3: Mm-hmm. Tom
1: Wilson discovered, well, when I say discovered, I mean he enabled them to make mm-hmm. records when nobody else in the world was going to enable them. He did that with the Velvet Underground. He did it with Frank Zappa. He did it with Simon and Garfunkel. He did it with Cecil Taylor. Uh, he was a jazz, really important jazz producer. Tom Wilson, you know, like popular music would be something other than what it is if he hadn't been out there doing does his it, thing.
0: Does the documentary have a title?
1: I think, it? the the well, I'm with this really great production company. In fact, I have a conference call in the next hour. I'm glad to say we're getting back, getting our minds out of lockdown. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the I think, we might just call it Tom Wilson. You know what I mean? Like, Great. Yeah. There's been a lot of different ideas for titles, but that's that's the latest one that the producer likes, the production company guy likes. And I like it too. So, I mean, we might just go with that.
0: Well, it's hard to plan tours and it's hard to get to a recording studio. Um, do you have anything else planned?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just waiting it out. It's, oh, it's so much extra heartbreak in the world. Yeah you know it's it's that's the thing you know I've just been in this I've been in this fog for a while just uh you know like right away when the whole thing when the n- numbers started to increase two friends of mine died right away back to back i'm sorry yeah i mean everybody a lot of people have stories like that but uh anyway i just i was at first i was trying to like look pretend that it wasn't happening but i got disabused of that pretty quick when uh, South by Southwest got canceled. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, all right, here it is. And then again, like I said, soon after that, bang, bang, two friends gone. This is I don't uh, take this lightly at all, but uh, you know, eventually there'll be shows to play. And as soon as there is a show that I can play, I'll play it, you know, even if it was tomorrow, I would do it. I don't know. But again, I don't take this lightly. I'm not, I'm not complaining about the situation as it is now, but yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's, you know, the things are starting to open up, I guess.
0: Are you writing a little bit? No, I'm not. (laughs) That's funny. I've been, I've been recording.
1: Stuff that I've sort of half-written already, but not—I haven't finished writing anything. I don't really do that much anymore. Like the the documentary is so uh, all you know, like I I really love the project, and it's like that's. Once I'm not doing this anymore, I hope that I will go back to songwriting. Somewhere.
2: Down
0: Marshall Crenshaw, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about songwriting. Enjoyed your stories.
1: Thank you. I mean, you know, I have a lot of free time these days, so (laughs) it was nice to fill it up by talking with you, Dave. Thanks.
0: Take care, Marshall. Thank you. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 21 with Marshall Crenshaw. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the writer's room link for this episode. If you like the show, consider reviewing us wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.